You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Our topic today is something that is really uh, fascinating. This is a production that Louisiana Public Broadcasting uh, has done. Uh, it's being shown digitally. Um, it's, it's called a, a digital documentary series. And it's about the, the idea of this, the Green Book. And, and uh, we have two people who worked on the project. Uh, one of them is Emma Reed, who did the, uh, who, um, did the photography for the co-producer. And the other is Kara St. Cyr, who was the on-camera and the, and the voice and, and also a co-producer. So thank you all very much. Before we get into it, let me just uh, explain to the audience um, the steps, the evolution of this. There was a movie that came out, what, I think early last year, about the Green Book, correct? And the Green Book is, is about, it refers to a book that was published what, from the 1930s into the 60s or so. And it was a guide to blacks who were traveling, especially by automobile, about places where it was safe for them to go. And of course, this was the days when it, a lot of places weren't very safe I mean, in the days before civil rights bill. And so it became a guide for restaurants and places to lodge. So, so there was a film and, and the film as I recall, I think it was nominated for a couple of Academy Awards uh, had some success, even though the Atlantic I saw really panned it, but, the, but that was for other reasons. But it was an important film. Then the Smithsonian Channel did a documentary on it uh, uh, based on, on some of this. And now LPB has done something which you two have worked on, which talks about the Green Book in Louisiana and some of the places that were described. So is all that fairly accurate. Yes, all of that is accurate. Okay, well, boy, if we start off being accurate, we're in good, uh, we're in good shape. So anyway, uh, again, with me are uh, uh, Emma and, and, and Carol. And Carol, I want to start off because uh, in the, actually, there's a, a quote that's described to you uh, about your experience on this. <clears throat> and, and you say one of the most sobering aspects of this project is not that it happened, but that the existence of, and these referred to as, I guess I should have mentioned, sundown towns. That, that for a lot of people, for a lot of Blacks who are traveling, you pretty much had to be there by sundown, all right? And so they referred to as, as sundown towns. So one of the most sobering aspects of this project is not that it happened, but that the existence of sundown towns is so recent. African-Americans used the Green Book to navigate cities like Denham Springs. Well, my parents were small children. This puts everything into perspective. I can appreciate my ancestors even more now that I understand the sacrifices they made just to live. I think it's a very moving uh, touch. And the use of Denham Springs, uh, Denham Springs always had like a, a reputation as being sort of like a, a clan hotbed. And so when you say Denham Springs, you're saying, uh, um, you're saying um, a lot right there. So, so the two of you got together 
and you're trying to identify some of the towns. And I want to mention some of the places that's in the list, and there could have been um, been other places. And I just like to talk about your observations. Um, first of all, I guess the most famous in Louisiana is Dookie Chase, uh, which is the uh, the restaurant in New Orleans, which is still going strong, which is still a popular place. Um, long ago, stopped being a place uh, uh, just for blacks. In fact, whites, you know, stand in line and knock on the door to get in there. I mean, it's so popular. But but did y'all go to Dookie Chase? Any experiences there? Well, we did go to Dookie Chase's, and you know. I'm from Louisiana. I've been here my entire life and I this never- This is Kara you're hearing right now, so. Yep, I'm Kara, everybody. But, um, you know, I've grown up in Louisiana my entire life and I never stepped foot in Dookie Chase's before. Now, I've heard the name, obviously, but because I'm from Baton Rouge, you know, I've never actually been there. So when I walked in, I wasn't expecting it to be as artsy and eclectic as it was. And they really go out of their way to make sure that they represent Black artists. They have a bunch of paintings on the wall. They have stained glass on the inside, which depicts different aspects of the Black community and the Black community in New Orleans. And I think, obviously, my favorite part was I got to sit there and eat. You get to see that in one of the episodes. They gave me a complimentary bowl of gumbo. But I think the most interesting aspect of that restaurant was their participation in civil rights. These people housed meetings where you could get together and talk about how are we going to talk, how are we going to function through this next election, or how are we going to keep our community safe from the racial violence that's going on outside. They had freedom riders meet there, and it's really dangerous during that time period to do those things, and they knew that the white community knew that Dookie Chases was a hub for black activists and for the black community. And yet through all of that, they still decided to hold meetings there. They still decided to serve activists and they still decided to be such a big part of the civil rights movement. And I don't think everybody knows how much effort they put into the, the local movement in New Orleans. So that was one of my favorite my favorite parts. And one of the stories tell that there was a an office building nearby where this committee would meet. They'd be planning, planning the legal strategies, and it included at least a couple of white people too in there. Okay, so the problem was when they wanted to have lunch, how do they sneak the white people uh, into Dookie Chase? And, and uh, I think they had a room upstairs where they brought everybody, uh, uh, brought everybody uh, for lunch there. And, and of course, when Dookie Chase evolved. One of the most beloved people in certainly recent New Orleans history, now with Leah Chase, um, who was the, the wife of the man called Dookie Chase. You never saw Dookie Chase. I can tell you my whole life, I never saw Dookie Chase. All right? But you always saw Leah, who was uh, the, the profile of the place, who was known for her. Uh, she was from the country, so she knew that Creole country type cooking. And so more than a civil rights activist, she was a country cook. And she talked a lot about that. And we just had a really beloved um, following. Uh, Emma, you had any experiences from there? Any thoughts or? Uh... Yeah, well, she's, I've been a fan of hers for a long time. She's the queen of Creole cuisine. <laughs> um, one thing that you were saying about Dookie Chase that I found really interesting when we went there is even though it was in the green book, it, it was a place where black and white people could meet and it was, the police were okay with it. 
it was somehow this safe space. They said it was churches and then dookies. And that's where they had this upstairs room there, which they're actually planning on opening up in the future for people to visit. And that's where they would, that's where they would plan everything. A lot of, um, you know, the freedom bus riders would plan there. Um, and yeah, that was, that was definitely a favorite one. It's also interesting. The one other location that we did in New Orleans was the Dewdrop Inn. And that was on, on the Chitlin circuit, a really famous nightclub. And it was another one where they would let white people go in there too. And um, sometimes they would all get arrested. He would talk about paddy wagons showing up. And in the, in the early 60s, arresting everyone in the club for racial mixing. But the owner, um, Frank Panier, would just allow it either way. It was another safe space. Now you use the term chitling um, circuit, and that was used with respect, I think. It was, it, it was a term that was used to describe places that were catered to black clientele, not only in New Orleans, but around the state, that there were a lot of bars and dance places, and they were all part of the so-called uh, chitling circuit. And yeah, the, the dew drop in, it's, uh, it's very popular, and it's still there. Uh, and it's still, I think it's on LaSalle Street. And it's uh, in the heart of a, a neighborhood where uh, a lot of music evolved, a lot of the rhythm and blues um, scene evolved. Um, in fact, I don't know if you're familiar with the song Morning Grand Mambo, but on the song Morning Grand Mambo, there's a line where he talk about on LaSalle Street where everybody meets. And I think they're, I think they're probably talking about uh, the dew drop in. So, so did y'all actually go there? To the dew drop? Yeah. Yeah, we did get to go and it is still there. Now it doesn't look exactly the same as probably whenever they wrote that song, uh, Mardi Gras Mambo, but it's it's definitely still there, it's still standing. And um, on the outside, you can actually see that the Dewdrop was way more than a club. It was a restaurant, it was a hotel, and it was also a barber shop, which I thought was really interesting. And when you go inside and you go into the main area, um, they knocked down a, a lot of the walls because they're planning on re, um, renovating it and repurposing the location soon. But you can see they actually still have some of the old barber's chairs sitting in there. And I just, you know, if walls could talk, I was trying to picture what this place would have looked like on the inside whenever all of these superstars were going through there. And I just... I'm really, really jealous of Kenneth Jackson. That was the man that we interviewed. Um, his grandfather owned the club and he got to see everything in its prime. And I, you know, didn't know about this place before the Green Book. I really didn't, I learned a lot. So to actually go there and see that this was a giant hub for the black community in the forties and fifties, and that they were letting in white people, they were, like getting exposure for all these black musicians. It was, it was really interesting. And just another fun fact that I want to point out, this place had snake charmers as entertainment in the forties, really? snake charmers. And that just, isn't that the most off the wall thing you've ever heard? Snake <laughs> charmers. They would bring those people in and um, they would have them on the stage and just I don't know, just mess, I don't know what, what kind of tricks snake charmers do, but I just thought that was interesting. Snake charmers and ventriloquist. Didn't they have uh, some female impersonation also, like with the uh, 
with, with, with the, there was one in particular, I can't think of his name. Um, Patsy Vidalia. <laughs> what's that? It's Patsy Vidalia. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> one of the, which I, I thought that was fascinating. In the 50s, they were having drag shows and <laughs> they seen from all the pictures, they just seemed hilarious. It really was one of those places where everyone just got their nicest outfits and stayed all night. And it seemed like every famous black musician went through those doors. And I think also it was pretty progressive for the time period. You know, they did have female impersonators coming in and dancing and no one had a problem with that. Actually, she brought in people. They, they came to see her perform. And if you look at the pictures, you can tell, you can tell she was quite an act. Um, she was a comedian. She would crack jokes. Apparently a lot of them were off color, but that's what people liked back then. That's what they came to see. So they really let you come to this club and you could be yourself and you could forget about what's going on outside. And I think they did that very well for the time period. I would think of the drag show that there's no such thing as being off color. I think probably anything pretty much goes. You know, I was trying to think there was a, an R&B performer at the time named Bobby Morshan. And as I recall, Bobby Morshan kind of like worked both sides of the street, okay? He was an R&B performer as Bobby Morshan, but he was also one of these people also. And I've seen pictures of him in drag. And he might've been Patsy Fidelia, uh, for all I know, but he was one of the, uh, uh, one of the more popular. Just back to Doogie Chase for a second, the, um, there is a series of trails that the state has started um, and they're great trails. And, and there's one about black culture in, in, in Louisiana. And um, one of the places of course is Dookie Chase. And we interviewed two people who were involved with that trail. And I asked them about, and they would have known Dookie Chase, the man. And I always thought that maybe Dookie Chase was just some, some homebody kind of guy who would just stay on the sofa all day, didn't do anything named after him but they said no they said that duking was really active behind the scenes he, re he was really involved he did a lot of work but he just didn't want publicity and so uh, but 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 that he was a real leader for that place and so he did the work and and uh, not that leah didn't either okay but it was leah who really uh, really became the uh, the faith of the of the place okay so that's still new now when I think about that neighborhood where Dew Drop In, and this would be like around LaSalle Street near Claiborne, but I think about the neighborhood, which has been historically black, that there are some places that at one time, I think there still are motels, okay? And there have been motels, now back then they just had a, a black clientele. I'm sure today, you know, whites can go there too, but because look, but they developed as, as motels. But probably there was some kind of, there was a niche right there that these people were filling. Uh, I mean, they kind of had their, their target audience. Yeah, there weren't a lot of, well, the way Leah Chase's granddaughter describes it to me is that most of the super nice businesses and things that you know New Orleans was known for was closer to the French Quarter. And those areas were also mostly distinctly white. So once you go to where Dookie Chase is located, you need to have that same, those same businesses and the same access, but you just need it in your particular area. And that's why they had all of those businesses kind of in that one spot. And 
Dookie Chase is now, you know, they've had the opportunity to move to the French Quarter and move to other places in New Orleans, but they've decided to stay in that spot because they know how important this area was to the Black community and how important this restaurant was and how important it still is. So they decided to just make sure everything stays and just keeping that area, keeping that business where it originated. In the next generation, Edgar, um, Edgar Dookie Chase is a a real leader in the community too. So he's gonna, I think he could take, he could take up a lot of the legacy uh, that uh, we had left. There is a, a Ray Charles song. It's not one of his biggest hits, but it's something like Up All Night. And apparently he's describing in New Orleans, he, he's up all night, but at one point he makes reference to like up all night and going to the Dookie Chase. And, and so that's part of what he did. And he couldn't go home and go to bed until he went to Dookie Chase. So, all right. Let's talk about a couple of places outside of New Orleans. Um, one place you all mentioned, and I have a list here, but, but I mean, maybe some, some things that you all have that I'm sure that I don't have. But in Opelousas, Geron Tourist Home. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> well, one thing, one thing that I thought was interesting when we just started doing this research, you know, Dookie Chase was the first thing that came to mind but I didn't think that that would actually be the only location in Louisiana that was still operating out of hundreds. Um, so it was pretty difficult to find a lot of these places because they're closed and forgotten for the most part. And a lot of times in neighborhoods that are just kind of falling apart, but the Giron tourist home was really fun, a really fun one to find because it's just a house. And it's been, it was actually in the green book for the, um, the whole length of it. So from 1938 through 66, and the house is still standing and looks nice and um, kind of stayed in the family of the Girons. And when we started researching in Opelousas, we started discovering that there was this whole neighborhood and they called it the hill and it had this really famous bar called um, the Bradford's White Eagle that was on the Chitlin circuit and just this big vibrant flourishing community there and for some reason the only thing in Opelousas that was in the green book were was this tourist home and a couple other tourist homes it didn't list all of the other black businesses so I just found that really cool. There's a lot of teachers that stayed there. Musicians would stay there. And we got to go inside with the grandson of, or two of the grandsons of um, Bula Jerome, who ran and operated the house. So is it still functioning as a, as a home, as a tourist home? No. no. Okay. All right. Um, the Opelousas area in St. Uh, Landry Parish had a, a historically larger Black population than other parts of the state. But um, Kara, I remember you've been proud to say you've been on this podcast before. Um, um, LPB did something about the Black churches. And you told about a church in Opelousas. I think it was called the Holy Ghost um, Catholic Church. And tell a little bit about that. Well, the Holy Ghost Catholic Church was at one point one of the largest Black Catholic churches in the nation. 
And um, it was built, what I find the most interesting about this particular church is where it was built. So the street that it's built on was on the main stretch in Opelousas. And they had an all white Catholic church that was on the same street. So when the priests and the developers were like, okay, we're gonna get together and we're gonna build a black church on this particular strip, you know, the leaders at the time, city leaders, they were all white, of course, said, we don't want you guys to build the front of your church on this strip. We actually want it to be facing backwards so that, you know, whenever white people are going up and down, they don't have to really see you. But these people, they were crafty. So whenever they submitted the blueprints for the church, they showed the door, the entrance of the church facing away from the street. And so the plans were approved. And once the church was actually built, the priests submitted a different blueprint to the builders and the construction, and they actually built the church facing forward. So Opelousas has a rich history of resilience and of course, you know, just people doing amazing things. And I think the tourist home itself that we visited kind of shows that because it was right there in the hill. It was, I don't know that it's fair to really call it a business. It was, it was a tourist home, yes, but you know, it was just servicing the community and that's all anybody in Opelousas had been trying to do for the longest. So I hope, I hope that answered the question right. Oh, but, beautiful. Didn't you say the, um, um, in the stained glass that the uh, the saints are depicted as in, in black? Yes, they are. All the artwork on the inside of the church. And um, also they have crucifixes and the Jesus is also depicted as black and all of the disciples, the stained glass, all of it. So it really is centering black people in a way that they would have never, ever been the focus at the other church down the street. All right, let's move up to, to Shreveport. The George Washington Carver branch of the, the YMCA. Emma, any thoughts about that? Or? That one was very interesting because it was had the wrong address in the green book. So it took a lot of investigative research to figure out what was going on there. There was a there was a white YMCA, a black YWCA and another black YMCA that moved locations. Um, Kara can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I did most of the research for that one. So, all right. So in the green book, they have the YMCA, the George Washington Carver branch listed on Texas Avenue, which is technically the right address because at the time, you know, Texas Avenue was on a strip right outside of downtown and the downtown area was completely white. And actually, um, Ruth of Washington, one of the women that we interviewed, she told us that you couldn't go in that area at all unless it was a Saturday. And I asked her what would happen if you went there and she's like, we didn't even try. Um, so people would go to the YMCA, the George Washington Carver branch, um, which was on Texas Avenue, right outside the downtown area. And what's interesting about it is, you know, during the 40s, the late 40s, when this place was built, nobody could really open businesses. You couldn't open a franchise with a black leader, but the YMCA did let people do that. They let black people in these higher up positions and that's how they were able to open this branch. And it was completely self-sufficient. Um, pastors, community leaders, mainly church leaders, all got together, they fundraised, they 
had different events to raise the money for this place and they built it themselves and they ran it themselves and you know it was such a success in the community that they ended up building a much bigger location which is the one we actually went to in our docuseries because the other one doesn't exist anymore um the new one is on hearn avenue and you know, they held community meetings there. They had big names from uh, the civil rights movement go there. And it was just, it, it was a really important place to spread ideas and to also educate the kids. So I really had fun researching that story. It, it was one of my favorites because you don't hear about a YMCA that often in the Green Book. So it was really unique. The, um, again, from your church's documentary, wasn't there reference to it with a Baptist church in Shreveport? Was it like Union Baptist Church or, or something that was like a, a hotbed for civil rights activity? Or Oh, uh, I don't believe we mentioned this in our mm -hmm. Black Churches series, but I do believe I know what you're talking about. There was a church in Shreveport that was a big deal for civil rights and um, a reverend whose name was Harry Blake, I believe, was beaten inside of that church for participating in a civil rights activity. I'm not exactly sure which one it was, but I'm pretty sure they were holding a vigil for the little girls that were killed in the church bombing in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And the officials and the police officers didn't want them to hold that that vigil service and they decided to do it anyway. And that man was was beaten, but he he lived. He actually just died in, in 2020. So he was a big leader in the community and that comes from that church, I think. Okay, that sounds good. I have another place I want to mention, but first I should have mentioned, uh, why do they call this the Green Book? Um, well, Victor Green was the person that created it. So I guess he just took his last name and capitalized off of it. I think it's a great idea. It's really catchy. Made all the books green. <laughs> why do they call it that? So it was named after the man and not the, and not the and it wasn't even like the, a postal worker or something that the uh, yeah. so he, he had access to all, all these records well it's not so much records but it was the people like he was the traveling postal worker so he knew a bunch of postal workers that had to go all over the country so they would come back and report to him whenever they would find a new location that was friendly and um for uh what's the word i'm looking for just a place that black people could go and, and be safe it was a national book. And so the places that we're talking about here were things that were in that book um, that were um, in Louisiana. Have either of you seen the uh, the film, the full-length film? Yeah. Yeah. What did you think about it, Emma? I loved it. I actually rewatched it again when we were uh, researching for this show. And I realized it really doesn't talk too much about the actual Green Book. <laughs> Um, it's more so the story of the musician and, um, I had to watch the, I watched the Smithsonian documentary about the green book to actually learn about it. But I, I thought that was great. And another thing is when we were doing our research, every time we type in green book, everything goes right to that movie. <laughs> so it was very it was annoying. Annoying. <laughs> yeah. the movie I draw attention to it. I mean, I'm sure. I'm like a lot of people had never heard of the Green Book until the movie came out uh, from the attention I got. And so it did draw a lot of attention. And apparently from what I hear, the movie really became about the two characters, about 
the, the musician, the black musician, and like his, I guess, bodyguard, who was white and they were in, in their relationship. Uh, but at least, it, at least it got attention to it. Let me ask you another place. Uh, beautiful downtown Bastrop, Louisiana, uh, Jake's Cafe and Tourist Home. Yeah, Jake's Cafe was the spot in Bastrop. We really wanted to find places in Louisiana that were outside of New Orleans and Baton Rouge. And it was a little bit difficult because the majority of these locations were, that were in New Orleans. And once you get outside of the city, most of these places are completely basically erased from history they're demolished but we found Jake's Cafe to be in the green book for only one year in 1961 and it was actually highlighted at a museum there's the Snyder Museum in Bastrop they had an exhibit on the town's black history and they had the original sign and we learned that Jake's Cafe actually opened up in 1920 and it was a tourist home as well. And just one of those places that had everything. A lot of these places in the green book, even if they said it was a cafe, it was, you know, you could get stamps there. You could go grocery shopping. You could, you know, sleep there. And uh, that one was fun. We actually found way more people who remembered it than we expected. So there's five people in that episode talking about it. Um, one thing that was fun, there's three guys that we got barbecue with, and one of them married Mr. Jake's daughter. Um, Mr. Jake Smith, who ran the cafe, was just a really prominent figure in town. And then the other gentleman met his wife at Jake's cafe, but they just talked of it as being the nicest place to go. You always get the best service. Yeah. And that one, and we went to the location where it was, which is nothing. <laughs> it, was, it was demolished um, in 2013. So as the photographer, it must be difficult to photograph nothing. <laughs> yeah. Use your imagination, I would think. <laughs> yeah. There was um, sometimes, sometimes I'll see a little uh, foundation. <laughs> Go for it, yeah. <laughs> were these places ever vandalized? Was there any difficulty? Were they pretty much accepted as being part of the community and, and left alone? I don't know that we saw anything vandalized. For the most part, if anything had happened to these locations, it was really just time. Time is what happened to them. They would have fallen apart. Um, I don't think anybody purposely did anything to any of the locations we went to. Emma, did you recall anything like that happening? I don't think so. What we would mostly notice is like overgrowth. Like one, we were really surprised to find um, Carrie's beauty school. It was one of our favorite episodes to do. And the whole time we didn't think that the building was actually there until- I'm sorry, what's the building called? Carrie's beauty school. It's Carrie's right on Government Street. In Baton Rouge? Yeah. Okay. And we were shocked when we pulled up and we saw this building covered in vines 
but it even had the old sign on it. And we had no idea that the building was even there. Yeah, and the lady that we had interviewed uh, for the story, Maida McDonald, she said that the building looks exactly like it looked whenever it was up and running. Obviously, you know, without the vines and the bugs and things growing through it, but she said it looks exactly how it did back in its heyday. And, you know, she passes by it often just to kind of remember all the all the good times. So you always hear the story, I mean, is once the barriers went down, were some of these buildings hurt by that? When you say barriers, what do you mean? The, you mean? the racial barriers in terms of uh, people being able to go there. Uh, for example, you hear about the, the, the historically black universities. Uh, you know, once that went down, that they lost a lot of their, their population. I mean, uh, how did they react to it? Well, it's it's true. A lot of these businesses, I, I dare say pretty much all of them have been affected by integration in some way. And a lot of the businesses closed because of it. And it's not because people necessarily forgot that these businesses were there, but if you've been barred from going to a really, really fancy restaurant downtown your entire life and all of a sudden sure. something changes and you can go, you know, I don't fault people for necessarily going. I would be curious and want to go too, but it hurt. It did hurt a lot of the businesses because they lost a big customer base. And a lot of people started moving because these were self-sufficient black communities and they started moving to other sides of town where they weren't allowed to live and they did lose customers. And a lot of these places closed because of that. And from talking to the people that we interviewed, I don't know that the owners were upset about it. I think a lot of them understood. I think they may have been hurt financially, yes, but I think they understood why it was happening. It really was the same. It was like the same ending of every single story, how integration was this double-edged sword and you know, having these equal rights, like all these good things came with that. But you notice that all of these thriving neighborhoods started to fall apart. And like Kara was saying, um, some of those reasons were because people could go to all the places that they couldn't go earlier. But with some of the stories and, you know, it's kind of hard to determine what the cause was, but a lot of them, they think that, you know, these businesses were doing really, really well. And after integration, a lot of white people did not like to see these black businesses making so much money. And there was different ways of kind of shutting down these neighborhoods. We right. noticed that a little bit. And, um, and we were talking about the Ever Ready Hotel in Baton Rouge and uh, Scotlandville. Such as, how would they do that? At least with Scotlandville, um, it was ways of redistricting and building um, like malls and I know rebuilding the airport, the Baton Rouge airport and 
Scotlandville used to be its own town and then it kind of merged with Baton Rouge and there's subtle ways like that that will start to strip money out of the local businesses. Yeah. So no one wants to stay in a motel that's next to a runway or anything like that. I mean, yeah, that's and, and highways are highways are the obvious ones. Um, you'll notice all of these historic black neighborhoods now have I-10 running right through them or another big highway. Yeah. Um, I've gone through my list. Is there is there any place that I've uh... I haven't mentioned that stands out in your mind. Um, I would say Carrie's. I mean, we talked about it briefly, but that was everyone's favorite episode, I think, so far. Um, Carrie's Beauty School, and we also we combined that episode with Pori's, oh, excuse me, Poro's Beauty School in New Orleans, and we liked that one because not only does it highlight obviously something unique like beauty, but it highlights black women, especially because these businesses were both owned and operated by black women. And they also were, the goal of these businesses were to employ black women, to teach them how to, you know, make their own resources and be pillars in their community. And they used beauty to do that. So I think that that was definitely one of my favorite ones. And the person that we interviewed was so eclectic and so silly and <laughs> she was um made of mcdonald was she was she was great to talk to and she showed us the old carrie's building and her grandmother actually owned poros in new orleans so we got to see pictures and that that was definitely my favorite one out of all of these that i did yeah and poros so there's the poro school of beauty culture and also the madden cj walker school of beauty culture and they had different locations around the country. So these were these are pretty large organizations, um, you know, educating black women and helping them open up their own businesses. So that was it was a really big deal. And that one was the most fun because it was really a surprise to find it. We were looking for anyone that had a connection to the original Poro School, which is on what's now what's now OC Haley in uh, Central City, New Orleans. And we could not find anyone. So we almost gave up on doing this story until we found Maida McDonald at the very, very end. And we thought her connection was to Carrie's in Baton Rouge, but then we found out it was Poro's too. And Karen and I were jumping up and down. <laughs> we were so excited. Actually, I think, you know, we, I forgot to mention that a, a lot of these people in the Baton Rouge area that own these businesses, they knew each other or they were family. So um, the Ever Ready, the, um, the woman that we talked to, Joan Forbes, her and Beta McDonald, they all know each other. And Carrie's, I believe, was Joan's cousin. And everybody was just kind of related and they all own businesses together with the one goal of just making sure that they could educate the black community and also spread the wealth because a lot of these owners were giving money out to other people so they can open their own businesses and it was just really interesting to find out at the very last minute because like emma said we were going to give up that all of these people were related and these locations were still standing mm -hmm. 
you know, when you said O.C. Haley, it just triggered something in my mind. I just, that, that street used to be, there still, yeah. still is a Dryad Street, but, but, but that was part of Dryad Street. And it was a commercial street where almost all the stores were Jewish owned. Um, the department stores and the, everything was, but they catered to the black clientele. And so, whereas in Canal Street, a lot of places, you know, um, blacks were denied, Dryad Street wasn't. And so that was, I guess, another level to the story that some people that did go after the black merchant or, or, or customer, but they weren't necessarily black, but, but, but I guess, I don't know, did you, did you run into any of that? Like the Jewish store or anything like that? Or? I didn't, I didn't learn anything about that. But one thing throughout this project, you start to know how much you don't know, because so much of this history is, it's hard to, it's hard to find. Um, just the fact, just how hard we had to research just to figure out some of these stories about these neighborhoods and, you know, living in New Orleans for so long and having no idea about this. And I think there's a lot of people that don't know about this. It really, it makes me wish we could just continue this series because I know there's a lot more places. Yeah, you know, well, let me, let me encourage you because what you're doing is very valuable. And this is pretty much of an untouched topic. I mean, like I said, I'd never heard of the Green Book until the movie came out. And that was like earlier this year. And so all the stuff that has been going through that, and so what, what you two are doing is really important. And, you, and you're contributing information that's just not out there. And you know, it's, it's, it's very important. So keep on doing it, okay? So, you know, among the many interesting points that um, I learned from reading about this and preparing about this was the, um, the company that we now call Exxon, which back in the early days was called Esso, E-S-S-O for Standard Oil. But Esso was one place in the nation that, because you had to travel, I mean, what was happening is that more and more people were in automobiles now. And so there were, there were more service stations and black travelers were encouraged to go to Esso because they were treated well, but they could also get the green book at Esso station. So they would know to do that. And so it, it had always been a supporter of that level of travel. Uh, and so to this day, I mean, gradually, I saw all kind of mergers and then it became Exxon. And lo and behold, wasn't Exxon one of the, uh, the sponsors of this project? Yes, Exxon was. And one of our episodes actually focused on an SO station in Scotlandville. Um, Dalton Honore took us there and it was called, it was Horatio's, uh, Horatio's service station number two. And this man, Horatio Thompson, I think he was actually the first black millionaire in Baton Rouge and the ESSO stations that he was operating played a huge role in the civil rights movement. One thing that he would do is he would sell gas at cost to um, carpoolers during the bus boycotts and the Baton Rouge bus boycotts. And um, Kara, what, what else? What else was Horatio Thompson doing? But they were big. Um, go ahead. Sorry, 
Um, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. The biggest thing that he did was make sure that he was supporting the bus boycott. Well, in my opinion, because he was able to sell the gas a lot cheaper because people were giving out rides. They weren't riding the buses. And without somebody like that in the community, these people wouldn't have been able to carpool. And it would have been really, really difficult. And he did that for a really long time. So he lost tons of money and profit. But I think what mattered most to him was that the civil rights movement went through and that they were able to get their point across. So that was, I think, one of his main contributions with that, with that gas station. Does the station still exist in Scotlandville? The, the building is still there, but it's not Horatio's anymore. It's functioning kind of like a mechanic spot right now. But they have murals all over it. They have murals of Horatio, of what the, uh, what the station used to look like. And so everyone knows that this used to be an important place. So the building's still there, but it's not Horatio's anymore. Okay. You know, just thinking through this, Exxon evolved from ESSO. Okay, ESSO, E-S-S-O, with a, a play on words for standard oil, right? Standard oil was started by Rockefellers and the, uh, uh, the Rockefellers always had sort of like a, a philanthropic side to them. And so I think you saw this uh, being played out. Well, good, I'm glad y'all got that support. All the better to tell the story. Give us information like if people, okay, this is a, uh, a digital series put out by LPB. If someone wants to see it and you should want to see it, how, how do they access it? So you can go to lpb.org backslash safe haven, or you could go to LPB's YouTube channel and there's a playlist with all eight episodes. Okay, lpb.org backslash safe haven. It's two words. Uh, um, and the series itself is called uh, Safe Haven Louisiana's Green Book. Or you go to LPB and look for their Blue Book channel. And you said there's eight episodes? I mean, YouTube channel. So we are packaging some of them to uh, be in an episode that we will broadcast. And those will be in December. Okay, well, that's great. Okay. And so, uh, and so, and then once y'all broadcast, I mean, y'all should broadcast like every month from now on. I mean, I mean, I mean it's something very, uh, very valuable. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Is there any, is there any like story or anecdote or something that you could send us away with, an experience from uh, from your work? Hmm. I don't know. That's a hard one. There were a lot of okay, you <laughs> a lot about, of things we did. You talked, about, you talked about the favorite places being that beauty parlor in the in Baton Rouge. Any like really favorite character that you came across? Oh, for me, it was definitely made a McDonald, which kind of ties into the, the favorite story I did, which was Poro's and Carrie's beauty school. She was amazing. Um, she has all of her family pictures and all of that information that she just holds on to, but also her character. She, she's really big into fashion and really big into decorating and sequence and stuff like that. And that comes directly from her grandmother's influence and from going to the Poros beauty school and just kind of sitting and watching her grandmother work. So she's definitely a reflection of her family. And she was, 
she's very, very, very hospitable too. She let us, she let us in. She offered to cook us gumbo. She was definitely my favorite character to talk to. Did you take her up on the gumbo offer? No, actually, because the day that she wanted me to come over because she cooked it, I was out of town, but I still have her number and we still talk after this. So I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I'll have some of her famous gumbo at some point. But you, but you did have gumbo at Dookie Chase. I yeah. did. <laughs> at least. Okay. Emma, anything in particular? Nothing, nothing, nothing that I can think of in particular. Everyone we met was so great. We, I really enjoyed um, getting barbecue with the three guys in Bastrop. They're just, uh, they're just a really tight knit crew. They go out to eat every week together. Everyone in town knows them. And it was just, I think a fun walk down memory lane for them. All right. Well, thank you, it's been fascinating. Uh, I've learned a lot. And we'll look forward to it on the on the uh, on the digital and that's great good news about y'all gonna broadcast it too. Thank you all very much. Thanks for having us. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts, and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico, in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.